Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. There are few subject matters that are new to photography. To a degree, it's all been done before. But just because it's been done doesn't mean that a photographer can't find a unique and personal way of exploring the subject, scenes, or ideas explored in the past by others. Because each photographer can bring their personal experiences, their way of seeing, to the creative process that results in photographs that have their own voice and are not just derivative. Gerald Cyrus has used his camera to document the jazz clubs of both Los Angeles and New York. He also turned his lens onto his own family, living both in the Northeast and the South. He's also taken to the streets and practiced street photography. Each of these has been explored by other photographers, but that hasn't deterred him from defining these things for himself. His photographs in jazz clubs go beyond simply photographing musicians playing their instruments, but explores the relationships between the musicians themselves and their patrons. In New York City, he observed the differences between the more formal clubs in lower Manhattan and the more intimate settings up in Harlem. Uh, and someone just hit me to it. I was, you know, at a performance of Max Roach up at um, Aaron Davis Hall, seated next to a woman, and she asked me, did I know anything about the jam sessions at a little club called the Metro Bar up in uh, Upper Harlem, close to Washington Heights? And I said, no, nah, I never heard of it. She said, yeah, we had these jam sessions every Sunday night. You know, should go check it out. So as soon as I could, I did. And what immediately struck me was like the communal atmosphere of the room because most of the people in the room were musicians themselves or singers. And so they would come up and they would sit in and they all knew each other. There was just, it was almost kind of like a house party kind of atmosphere. He also spent time documenting his own family members. And though this photography didn't involve the technical challenges of shooting in dimly lit clubs, it certainly offered its own set of challenges. Relatives who didn't completely understand why he was always hanging around with a camera. Yeah, you said like to, to break through those um, defenses, almost wear down their resistance, because at first they you know, find it amusing, and then after a while it's like, why are you still taking pictures? Or what could be possibly be interesting about this situation right here where I'm sitting at a table with, with papers you know, strewn across the table or, or what have you, or I'm just laying, laying down here watching TV? You know, so... People don't often get why you're doing what you're doing or why you're taking the picture. But again, when you're able to bring them images that you've shot and show them the beauty of it, then they're like, oh, okay, this really looks nice. I, <laughs> okay, I had no idea this is what this you were you were after, what you were doing. And so then that definitely you know adds to the buy-in and they start to you know become more comfortable about what you're doing and to and then just like I said after a while just start to ignore you and that's the best when they just basically start to ignore you and do whatever it is they're doing and not pay attention to you. We'll talk to Gerald about the role of mentors in his career and why film and a silver gelatin print hold so much magic for him in the age of digital. Welcome to the Candid Frame. You know, when I was doing the research, I realized we had probably crossed paths before when you were still in L.A. Because okay. uh, you mentioned Black Gallery and Roland right. Charles. And right. I was just like, oh, I was hanging around there all the time back in the day. Really? Okay. Well, we definitely then did then because, um, yeah, that's basically where I got my start. You know, I mean, I at, very shortly after I started taking classes in photography, they opened and so I just started hanging out there, met Roland, Calvin, yeah, uh, Donald knows. Bernard, Willie Middlebrook. Oh, yeah, Willie, yeah. 
Yeah, Willie. So, yeah, man. So those are all my early, early mentors. Yeah, it, it's coincidentally, uh, it would have been Roland's 70th birthday today. Wow. Yeah, wow. I just saw his wife yes. voice something on Facebook. For people who, who, who don't know who aren't uh, from L.A., Roland Charles founded um, the Black Gallery, which was in the Lamert Park District, the Ken- Crenshaw District. And it was right. a gallery that was really dedicated to photography, not just of African-Americans, but people of color from mm-hmm. out the United States, from out the world. And he was a really... You know, an important part of the community until he passed away prematurely uh, several yeah. years ago. Yeah, I think I had already moved to New York when he passed away, but uh, yeah, I was really shocked by that. Yeah, yeah, I miss him. I miss him terribly. He was such. Yeah, and he was he was just an anchor for for the whole community here because in oh, Los Angeles, they had never been nothing like that in that community. And you know, dedicated to photography. Yeah. You know, and so that, that absolutely it was the uh, the magnet for so many people. Yeah, yeah. So props to props to Roland, man. Yeah, definitely. And then we lost Calvin, you know, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that also was um, you know big loss. And Willie. And Willie, yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Willie. I mean, yeah, the the, <laughs> the giant, you know, Willie in his photography. Uh, yeah, it was too many people too soon. But that's funny. I just saw Donald Bernard recently uh, when I was out there mm-hmm. in, in July. I was able to see Donald. You know, like I said, I really um, thankful to the guys to, like taking me under their wing. Yeah, and uh, showing me the ropes. That's so important, and it's you know such a a nice way to sort of gain an entry into this world of photography. Mm-hmm. You know, by people who are not only just good photographers, but really generous with respect to sharing what they know. Right. You know, because in different communities, you get people who are very guarded and they have their secrets and they don't want to share them with anybody. Right, <laughs> but, right. Exactly. But it's, nice, it's nice to have a group of men and women who are just willing to put ego and pride aside and just to be open and share what they knew and you know, right. pass it on. And also the obstacles they had overcome. So, you know, you're not the first person to face these things and realize, you know, you just got to keep plugging along. You got to keep going. And so letting you know that, okay, you know, it's not all going to be smooth sailing. Yeah. You're going to have to, you know, fight some obstacles. You're going to get ignored and whatnot. But if, you know, if your work's important to you, you keep doing it, you know? You know, what's interesting about your, your story in terms of you starting out is that uh, you started photographing in some of the jazz clubs here in L.A. And right, right. And if... Yep. Personally, yeah. I can't think of a harder situation to put myself in <laughs> to try and learn to take good photographs than a jazz club because those it, it seems like they get the memo to, okay, get the lights down to virtually nothing. Nothing, right, right, right. <laughs> if you do yep. get a camera in there, they give you all this grief about trying to take pictures and all that inky blackness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny because back when I uh, started doing it back in the early mid '80s, probably mid '80s, they really didn't give you that big of a hassle. I can't really think of any club owners that really, you know, told me not to shoot. They would just say, "Don't use any flash," because that would mm-hmm. be distracting. So, of course, now you <laughs> have to deal with those lighting conditions. But I would just get there early, get a spot close to the stage, and you know, I think this was before T Max thirty two hundred speed film. So, what I would like to shoot Triax at like sixteen hundred, and okay. then push, push the development. But then I just really concentrated either one on those like those moments where the musician was still. You know, like you'd come to a yeah. rest and snap the shutter then if I was trying to get uh, a sharp image. And then the other time, I would just let the motion go. And that's something I kind of picked up from looking at some other photographers, particularly Roy De Carabas, just slow. And you, okay, you can't get a fast shutter speed, so let's slow it down and just let the movement in the blur overtake the image. And you can get some really interesting uh, images that way. So those are kind of the two techniques I, I tried to master. But yeah, it was definitely a challenge trying to get, you know, some images in those dark, dark spaces. Yeah. D- during my time at the gallery, there was a photographer and I was trying to trying to remember his name. He was an older man, but he had been photographing jazz clubs back in the 40s, 50s. Okay. Yeah. And back in the day, you did not have the option of a high ISO film, so he was using right. He was using flash or strobe or whatever right. bulbs, you know, in order to create the image. So there's a long history of yeah. you know photographers hanging out with jazz artists and photographing them, but you know, right. it was right. 
flies was absolutely necessary back then. In order yeah, to yeah, definitely, anything. definitely. So Roy, the Roy Nicaragua, <laughs> for example, created some wonderful imagery where, you know, there was no flash. He was just using the available light, and the blur that's created really adds to the aesthetic. Exactly, exactly. That's and that's how kind of the the uh, thing I tried to utilize. So I made a number of images where I just let the uh, let the shutter speed go down to two, three seconds. You know, just count it off in my head and just experiment. You have no idea what you're going to get, but yeah. you just experiment and see what comes up when you uh, when you develop the film. And then, like I said, when I would try to make sure I'd get a sharp image, I would just try to make wait to those little moments where musician was at rest, and maybe I could shoot it at a fifteenth or an eighth of a second and. Get Get something relatively sharp. Relatively sharp is the key, right? Relatively sharp, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, You're trying all you can to brace your elbows on the table and everything. But it's I think it's a good it's it's a good opportunity to realize how sharpness can sometimes be overrated because if you get the moment and it's not oh, necessarily yeah. technically sharp, it doesn't matter because the mo- moment is so magical. Exactly. The emotion carries it. The other thing I found out now that I've been dealing somewhat with digital photography is uh, the beauty of grain. I used to like just fight this grain. Oh, you try to minimize the grain. And now that you can produce these virtually grainless images, I'm like, you know, I actually kind of like that grain, (laughs) you know. But even in the T-Max 3200 speed film, I mean, I which I shot almost all of my Harlem work, uh, jazz work with, that grain adds, you know, a certain depth, you know, to those images, I think. Yeah, I think that the relationship that people have to grain or noise is so... Uh, related to looking at pictures on a screen where you have the benefit mm-hmm. of magnifying it 200, 400%. Right. As opposed to how grain or noise looks at an unfinished print when you're looking right. at the normal distance because all of a sudden your relationship to that grain or that noise is completely different from the way mm-hmm. people are sort of accustomed to evaluating their pictures. That's true. That's very true. Right. Right. Yeah. Looking but, at prints. But, you know, getting back to the starting to sort of cut your teeth as a photographer in the jazz clubs, and I imagine that working within those kind of limitations really allow you to hone a skill that you really wouldn't be able to if you're just, say, shooting general photography, right? Mm-hmm. Because immediately you have, you have to understand that, okay, I have the limitation of light, I have the limitation of shutter speed, I physically I am not able to move as freely. And so right. what, what did you learn as a result of that in terms of building a really strong composition with respect to the placement of different elements in the frame mm. and how you leverage light and shadow? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, because I definitely, you know, it's get a lot of it by trial and error, but as well as looking at the work of other photographers. And so you sort of see what they are been able to do in those with those limitations. But, um, yeah, you definitely, uh, you know, you think about where the light's falling in terms of where it's hitting musician and also where it's hitting their instrument. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. another fascinating thing about working in jazz clubs. Uh, it's just the, uh, the effect of the light on these often these metallic instruments and just, just the wonderful play of light from those and then you you have to start to think about also background you know i shot a lot of that stuff with moderately telephoto lens so you have to think about what's in the background that might be uh distracting from the image but one of the things i also really tried to um think about is not just photograph musicians playing okay there's tons of images of musicians Mm -hmm. playing but also the interaction between the musicians on stage always found that interesting with jazz musicians because so much of the music is about listening and playing off what the other musicians are, are, are doing and so i would also you know try to pick up on those interactions between musicians and see if I could capture some of that, right? You know, uh, those different communications that on stage. So I thought about that. And then just also the way, definitely there's plenty of shadow. <laughs> there's tons of shadow. So you got to think about how to deal that, how something emerges out of a shadow, right? And not be afraid of darkness, all right? A lot of my images, there's plenty of of, of dark gray or black in them. And you can't be afraid of that. You just have to be like, yeah. okay. That's going to be a huge part of the image. But where does the light come up? You know, where are those parts of the frame where the light does hit? And how does that interact within the darkness? Yeah, I like that you mentioned the sort of interaction and the relationship dynamic between the musicians. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah. something that I'm always trying to capture. And it's really 
a real challenge because then, you know, I think it's a, a little easier to sort of capture that really nice moment where the saxophonist is like leaning forward or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the bass player is completely lost and just his fingers are dancing yeah. on the strings. But when you start thinking about the dynamic between them, especially if you can capture some of that, those verbal cues that they share, you mm-hmm. know, because, you know, there's, there's not like, Talking between the two, between the two or three or four players that are up on the stage, so much of it is, yeah, it's about listening, right? But it's also, it's like you're keeping an eye, right? On what the right. Other There's a nonverbal is doing communication, or affirming, yeah. and when you see that happen, it's like, and you can get it. It's quite satisfying. Oh yeah, yeah. Or even just a smile. You know, somebody will play something, and somebody in the stage will just turn around and smile, and you know <laughs> they did something that was a little unexpected. You know, or or it could be the opposite. I remember photographing Johnny Griffin, you know, you know, the Catalinas is still around, but it's mm-hmm. in a different location now. Man, he was rough on his uh, his younger bandmates. You know, these oh, guys, yeah. he was probably in his uh, 60s by then. And but mostly his band members are early, maybe late, early 30s, late 20s. You know, so they were definitely learning under him. But, yeah, sometimes they would play something and he'd give them a look like. Mm, no, no, <laughs> that wasn't it. So that was, that, was, that was interesting as well, you know. So you moved to New York at one point uh, to get a more formal education in photography. But right. You, and you started hitting the, the clubs down there. Right. Tell me about the difference that you noted from the sort of downtown clubs and s- some of the clubs that were more uptown. What was the dynamic difference there? Yeah. There? Well, pretty much when I got to New York, you know, I mean, I probably spent the whole month there, my first month there in jazz clubs because it's, you know, finally here at the Mecca. And, you know, L.A. had maybe at that time three, you know, active jazz clubs that were like dedicated to jazz. Well, New York, I mean, you had, and again, this has changed also, but at that Mm -hmm. time, you had the good 10, 12 clubs that you could go to on any night. You know, I was always in the clubs, you know, photographing. And the downtown clubs were pretty much like the ones in L.A. You know, you'd have the bandstand, you'd have the audience sitting at tables around. And uh, like I said, if I got there early, you know, I could get a seat close to the table and photograph. But there really wasn't any moving around. Once I was seated, that's pretty much where I sat during Mm -hmm. the performance. I mean, maybe occasionally I might get up and go toward the back of the room so I could get more more of a, a full shot of the entire bandstand. But that was pretty much it. Once I found out about the little bars and lounges up in Harlem, which happened around 1994, uh, and someone just hit me to it. I was, you know, at a performance of Max Roach up at um, Aaron Davis Hall, seated next to a woman, and she asked me, did I know anything about the jam sessions at a little club called the Metro Bar up in uh, Upper Harlem, close to Washington Heights? And I said, no, nah, I never heard of it. She said, yeah, we had these jam sessions every Sunday night. You know, should go check it out. So as soon as I could, I did. And what immediately struck me was like the communal atmosphere of the room because most of the people in the room were musicians themselves or singers. They would come up and they would sit in and they all knew each other. There was just, it was almost kind of like a house party kind of atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I said, wow, this is, uh, this is much different. And from there, I found out about the St. Nick's Club jam sessions that happened on Monday nights. And so after going there for maybe once, I mean, yeah, just one time and meeting the, the woman who ran the um, the jam sessions there, Roberta Alloway, um, I asked if I could, you know, come back with my camera. She said, sure. And so I went back there and I mean, I just, it was just a totally different experience. I could move freely within the club. There would be pe- people dancing. I hadn't seen dancing in a jazz club since, I don't know, <laughs> that was to me like a throwback from the 40s, you know, and here you had people dancing and it was just so free flowing that I was free to move around the entire room. And that's when it struck me that I didn't want to just photograph musicians. I wanted to photograph the entire room, Uh, the people at the bar, the people dancing, the people socializing, the guys trying to seduce women, all of that. That's, that's, that's the magic stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, right. The, right. The performance and, and that's where I started using flash in a jazz club, because by then I had pretty much gotten comfortable with a technique of using a flash on camera where I would uh, be able to bounce the flash off the ceiling okay. and soften the light. 
And so I was able to take that technique in the, in the clubs and nobody had a problem with it. You know, nobody, again, nobody. So we know you don't use it a flash or anything like that. They were, you know, pleased to, uh, to have me in there and they pretty much considered me the unofficial photographer, <laughs> you know, and I would come back every week and bring people pictures. So, so but it is, it, is sort of the patrons just assumed that you were supposed to be there doing what you were doing and that's why they exactly didn't leave you in a right, group? right. Right. And they had no problem. And they were, um, you know, they did do what they were doing. They Nobody stopped. They pretty much cons- mm-hmm. began to consider me part of the uh, the atmosphere there, you know, yeah, part of the I, experience. One of the pictures that I loved seeing there was a picture shot at the bar over the shoulder of a guy whose girlfriend or wife is not pleased with him at all. She's got, <laughs> she's got yes. this look on him and going, Negro, you just didn't say that, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know. Often images don't accurately depict what's actually going on, but in that case, it definitely did. She oh, was man. highly, highly upset with him, and so yeah, I was just able to discreetly, in that case, capture that image of her with that look. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I love about so many of the photographs because you you capture some really interesting nuances of what life is in in the club because it's not just the performers and the drinking there's this interesting dynamic mm-hmm. that happens between the men and the women and the you know the patrons and the owners and the musicians and right. you know and just having the freedom to sort of fully explore you you help to tell a really complete story of what that experience is like yeah yeah that's and that's what i wanted and again it, this you know never really occurred to me till I stepped into the scene. This wasn't pre-planned. This wasn't something I said, well, yeah, I want to do this. It wasn't until I showed up at the Metro Bar and then, you know, the following week, St. Nick's Pub, that I realized, you know, what was happening and then through photographing, deciding what I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. you know. And again, you have to work with the people that are there. And so how, um, you know, how agreeable are they to being photographed? And once I saw that they were completely comfortable with my presence, you know, were happy to have me there photographing, and that just gave me, you know, the entree to, to move about freely and just photograph whatever I thought was interesting. Yeah. What did you take from that experience of shooting in the clubs and apply to when you started photographing your family members? Yeah, well, I actually had started photographing my family members first, and actually when I said oh, okay. my... Yeah, my comfortability with using flash that came with photographing my family members. When I was uh, came to New York, uh, and I started the MFA program at the School of Visual Arts as my thesis project, I uh, decided to to uh, do it on my family. I about the same time I had started going back to New Orleans, which is where my family is originally from. Both my mother and father were from New Orleans, and then they moved out to LA. Uh, before I was born. So I had been to New Orleans a couple of times before, a couple of family reunions. But back in the early 90s, I started going back regularly and really got to know my relatives, my cousins, aunts and uncles really Mm -hmm. well. And I decided that 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 was, you know, an aspect of black culture that I didn't think had been covered adequately uh, was a family life, you know, that wasn't dysfunctional. Right. We've seen all these images of um, dysfunctional family life, but I hadn't seen very much that depicted, you know, middle class, well, you know, loving families. And so I said, well, I'll use my own. So I went back there, started going back there regularly. Uh, Plus um, a couple of one of my cousins and her husband uh, from New Orleans were coincidentally in Long Island at the time. They were both going to graduate school at its uh, Stony Brook. So I visited, that was, you know, pretty much my weekends, you know, for the uh, early 90s was going out to Long Island, staying with them and got to know them really well and photographing them. And so that's, again, what in terms of technique, that's where I really got comfortable with using wide angle lenses. I didn't use wide angle lenses much before then. And then using flash as well and being, um, the mastering a technique of being able to bounce the flash off the ceiling and mix it with the ambient room light to get a, a more naturalistic look. Yeah. Hey, we've just launched a new Candid Frame email list. It's going to be my way of connecting to you. I know you listen every week and that the show means a lot to you and your photography, but what's been missing for me is a way for you and me to connect. Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, they only go so far, and that's just been too much noise. The email list and the newsletter will allow us to connect in a way that those other social networks haven't done so far. So I invite you to sign up for the newsletter, which I'll be using not only to share all the different things that we're doing, but also to begin a dialogue, not only between you and me, but between everyone else who listens to the show. As a way of thanking you for signing up for the mailing list, we're giving away three ebooks that I've written over the past several years. It's just a small way of me saying thank you. You can sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or click on the tab on the Candid Frame website that reads newsletter. Thanks. Some of the best work that's ever been produced has been photographers photographing their own families. Yeah, uh, we, yeah, we mentioned right. Dick Carava, but even W. Gene Smith, who was more famous mm-hmm. for in terms of right. the stuff that he did in terms of combat right. and during wars, his personal work was marvelous. Lee Freelander, you know, there's just there's, right. there's a whole bunch of people who do that, and I think that's something that is sort of lost with people today in this sort of in this world where everyone's sort of obsessed with the snapshot aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that also part of it is sort of being intimidated by the very people you're closest to in terms of (laughs) photographing them (laughs) on a regular basis, especially in a really intimate way. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that process in terms of gaining their confidence. Because it's one thing to gain the confidence of someone who you don't know and who's opening up your lives to you. Right. It's quite another when it's your aunt. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, and uh, because yeah, and people really don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Hell, I mean, a lot of times you're not quite sure why you're doing yeah, what you're doing. You have some vague idea, but what the end product's going to be, but you don't, you can't really definitely say, okay, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, you said like to to break through those um, defenses, right, and um, almost wear down their resistance because at first they you know find it amusing, and then after a while it's like, why are you still taking pictures? Or what could be possibly be interesting about this situation right mm-hmm. here, where I'm sitting at a table with, with papers you know strewn across the table or, or what have you, or I'm just laying laying down here watching TV, you know. So people don't often get you know why you're doing what you're doing or why you're taking the picture. But again, when you're able to bring them images that you've shot and show them the beauty of it, then they're like, oh, okay, this really looks nice. I, <laughs> okay, I had no idea this is what this you were, you were after, what you were doing. And so then that definitely adds in, you know, adds to the buy-in and they start to, you know, become more comfortable about what you're doing. And then just like I said, after a while, just start to ignore you. And that's the yeah. best, when they just basically start to ignore you and do whatever it is they're doing and not pay attention to you. What I like so much about those images that you did of your family or the compositions, uh, they really are just out of this world. I just like how you frame a scene, not just in terms of how you include the family members in the shot, but how much you consider the space, you know, the lines of the rooms, the patterns, and, you know, that is just, that's great stuff. And I think that's often missing from a lot of people who choose to turn the camera on their own family members. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your awareness of that and basically sort of developing that sort of eye, not just for the action that's happening, but with respect to leveraging the space. Yeah, again, I'm trying to remember whose work I was looking at a lot back then, because a lot of it, you know, again, you learn by looking at the work of other photographers. You learn about the possibilities, Mm. you know, things that you didn't even consider. You look at the work. And so I remember looking at the work, a lot of, you know, great documentary photographers like Danny Lyon. Yeah. You know, also just the work, the work of Gilles Perez. I mean, he didn't have anything mm-hmm. to do with photographing his family, but just the way that he would capture all these different things in a frame and, and balance all of them. Right. This chaos and be, to be able to balance all of it into um, just a wonderful, graceful, 
uh, image. I learned from that. Yeah, and then just also, again, you know, once you, you look at the work and you, you learn from your mistakes, you know, you look at work and say, wow, this didn't come out the way I thought it would, and, you know, and so you start to think about ways you could better utilize the space. And again, when you're photographing your family, you're often going back to the same spaces again and again and again. And that, and that was the same thing with the jazz clubs, going back to the same clubs again and again. So you learn the space. You learn where the light's coming from. You learn how the lens is going to pick up this particular space, these, this, this wall, these images on the wall, the back, on the you know, pictures on the wall or whatever's there. And so, again, you, it, you learn from doing. And you see, when you can go back to the same space over and over again, you can figure out, okay, this is what I need to do. Yeah. You know? What's interesting about the work is that, be, is that you're documenting basically a middle-class family. Who happens to be who happens mm-hmm. to be black, which right. goes against the large number of imagery that we're bombarded with right. a lot of the time, right. which is mostly about poor uh, and, and crime and and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. As you started sharing the, the images, particularly especially at school, what what was the reaction to the photographs beyond what they look like aesthetically? Hmm. Well, quite a while ago, I'm trying to remember if I got. Um you know, what the responses were because, uh, I mean, I had one African-American classmate, Renee Cox, who's going to, of course, on to do <laughs> great, great things. But out of, you know, I think it was about 12 of us, that was the only other African-American uh, classmate I had. And I so said, I think they, they did believe the work was important. And certainly, um, you know, the uh, director of the program, Charles Traub, thought it was important. You know, uh, he was definitely very encouraging of me to do that work. Yeah, but I, I don't think that maybe struck them the same way maybe struck Renee, you mm-hmm. know, that how, you know, important it was to see images of African-Americans just being <laughs> normal family people, yeah. you know, not anything particularly striking uh, in terms of what they're doing, but just living their lives, going through their daily, weekly rituals. And of course, not to say that they didn't have, you know, uh, trying experiences, but again, that kind of dysfunction, particularly, maybe it's, you know, hard to remember back to the early 90s, but I remember there was just all this stuff in the media about the dysfunction of the African-American family, the disintegration of the African-American family. Mm-hmm. I was, and then you just saw that over and over and over. And so, that you know, there's so much of that you go, wait a minute, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, this is not the whole picture. I asked because I had a friend of mine uh, back in the day who had shown some work that was sort of along the same lines. And I think one of the reactions he got was like, well, where's the crime? Where's the drug stuff? Right, yeah, right, and, right. And right, part, of, right. part of, I think, that that whole perspective was somehow that if you were documenting this part of that experience of an African-American family and you mm-hmm. weren't including, including that, somehow you were being dishonest. Right. 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 You were being too right. selective in terms of what you were sharing. And you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? And I just. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Right. And right. I think it's sort right. of an odd, odd uh, argument that's to be made because that's not something that you normally would say about someone who is not of color, who's documenting mm-hmm. families in, in, a, in a sort of similar way, that somehow because right. of the, right. you know, because of the dominant assumption of what people are like, that you expect to see those photographs in order to be able to give the, the greater body of work any validity. Right, right, exactly. That you you make that assumption that those things are present, and if you're not showing them, then you're hiding them, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, that's that was what was uh, one of the things that I found kind of really offensive, and uh, that I wanted to you know counteract with my work and just say, okay, well, here's at least one <laughs> other look at something, you know, that uh, doesn't necessarily have to. Um, you know, fall within those parameters of what you're talking about, yeah. you know. Well, you've been involved with Kamoinge, which is a collective of, started primarily as African-American photographers. I don't know if it's, right. it's probably open more to, to, to just African-American. No, it's still African-American. We have, okay. we've brought into much, uh, m- many more women that are in the group now. Okay. Right. It used to be almost all men or all men except for Ming Smith. And so we've gradually broadened that. So include much more inclusive of women, but it's still, you know, African-American. So tell me about, being part of the group with respect to um, your own work, what sort of insights, feedback, 
you know, how did it sort of help you in terms of you developing developing the the, the bodies of work that you were producing? Well, I mean, like I said, I, Roy DeCarava, who was the first director of Komoenge, was, uh, you know, the first major influence I had in photography. Um, I remember seeing a documentary film on him in the early 80s. I think this was even before I started, you know, I picked up a camera. So I already knew of his presence when I started taking classes in photography. And luckily I had an, an early teacher at um, uh, UCLA Extension program named Sheila Pinkle, who was aware of him. I didn't realize at the time how rare that was for someone <laughs> who wasn't mm-hmm. African-American and was an African-American photographer to be aware of Roy DeCarava, but she was. And she told me about his, um, his monograph that was um, published by the Friends of Photography. And so I went, rushed out to Santa Monica, uh, Hennessy in, in Ingalls. Is that still around? I don't know Out if it's there. still around, but I, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rushed out to Hennessy and Ingalls to pick up this book, and that became like my Bible. And I so from there, I learned about Komoenge, learned about some of the other great photographers in Komoenge, Buford Smith, Adger Cowens, Tony Barbosa. And they really sort of became like a touchstone, Sean Walker. You know, their work became like a touchstone because they were like really committed photographers who had a distinct viewpoint, you know, and it came from their own experiences of being African-American. It came from their own personal experiences, whatever those were. And so being able to see that, you know, you could take that really personal viewpoint, that experience of being African-American and translate that into your work, I found really profound. Mm. And so, you know, from like, so, so from my earliest beginnings as a photographer, you know, the, they were influences on me. You know, Kamoingu was an influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. So when I moved to New York in 19, early 90s, I don't think they were as active, but they hadn't really disbanded, but I don't think they were meeting actively. Uh, though I did get a chance to meet some of the members individually, like Buford, right, and um, Lou Draper. Yeah, eventually, and I think when they started becoming active again in terms of meeting and looking, looking for more members, I was um, invited to join around uh, 1999 or 2000. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your Camden work. How did that come about? And, and what were you trying to do differently than what you had done before? Yeah, so that was very interesting to me uh, in terms of just uh, taking a different approach. Uh, so I moved here to Philadelphia in 2000. All right, my wife and I moved here to th- in 2000. And so just in terms of exploring the surrounding area, I uh, traveled over to Camden, which is just right across the Delaware River from uh, Philadelphia. And so I went over there. I believe the first time I went over there is to hear a concert along the riverfront. And so when I drove over and as I was, I was looking for the riverfront area, I was passing through these devastated neighborhoods. I mean, I was like, I mean, I've seen poverty before. But mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard when you go through block after block after block of just devastated, rundown, abandoned buildings. And it's like, but then you get to close to the waterfront and you go, oh, wow. So the New York State Aquarium is there. The, uh, the concert center is there. They have Wiggins Park is there, beautiful Wiggins Park. There's a marina there. And eventually they built a minor league baseball stadium all along this r- riverfront. But as soon as you get out of that neighborhood, it's like a completely different world. So I was like, well, what is going on here? Because mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen that kind of dichotomy that close together, right, in one city. And so I just started kind of like thought I'd like to explore that. And right along that time, uh, I guess I came up with the idea that I wanted to explore four by five photography. I don't know. I'm trying to remember where that came, where that idea came from. But I sort of decided I wanted to explore four by five photography after being a small camera photographer for, you know, my entire career. I picked up a crown graphic you know, camera, old crown graphic, and just started going over, over into Camden trying to photograph these neighborhoods. And as I was doing that, of course, now, so here I am, this guy with a, a tripod, an old looking, like the same kind of camera they used to use in the, use in the movies where they would show the press photographers with the, the card and the hat, right? That's the kind of camera I had. So people obviously, you know, passing along with, it's like, what are you doing? What is this about? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd strike up conversations with people and then we'd talk about Camden and whatnot. And then, and so I would offer to take their portrait, all right? Uh, and so I was also using Polaroid film, the Polaroid positive negative film. So I was able to give them a print right away, which, um, you know, they loved. And so through that process of meeting people on the street, 
giving them these Polaroid prints. You know, I just kind of struck up this whole new body of work of this mainly, uh, on the one hand, uh, posed uh, street portraits of people, and on the other hand, portraits of with a physical, you know, aspect, what, what Camden looks like, which at that time, for the most part, outside, like I said, outside the, the waterfront didn't look too good, though it's a lot has changed over the years. Do your friends and family wonder what the heck you were doing? <laughs> You're taking that big, expensive camera down where? Right, right. First of all, it wasn't that expensive a camera because, like I said, it was this old crown graphite I had picked up on eBay. Well, that's the thing. Most people don't know anything about Gandam. So probably nobody, you know, was had any, any awareness of what the experience was like. And like I said, like anything, Canon had a very, very bad reputation. But once you meet the people, most of the people you meet are just people trying to get by, right? I mean, yeah, you have the other, you know, really negative aspects that are going on around with the crime and, and, and the drug use. But most of the people, particularly the ones that, you know, were stuck there after everybody else left, right? Mm-hmm. After all the businesses, all the industry left. Because Camden at one point was a very prosperous industrial town. You had RCA, Campbell Soup Company, the New York Shipbuilding Company. So it was a thriving industrial t- uh, town back in the mid uh, 20th century. But then when those businesses left and then uh, when the middle class moved out to the suburbs, you know, right, just kind of like hollowed out the city, you know, all that was left were the poorest cit- citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, they're left, you know, just try to scramble by day by day. But like I said, when you meet them, they're just people trying to get by. And so I would really have, you know, these really interesting conversations with people and, you know, was able to to photograph them and hopefully, you know, depict them in a very, you know, humane way. Like you said before, and, you know, trying to gain the confidence of your family in terms of Mm -hmm. photographing there, that probably was sort of analogous to what you experienced out there because people almost immediately like Right, and again, that's where where the Polaroid print became, you know, just um, an instant, you know, almost kind of like Carlin Carter or way for me to uh, gain their trust because you could immediately show them what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, someone across the street goes, oh, yeah, hey, what what was that you just gave him? Oh, it's a Polaroid print. I just took his portrait. Oh yeah, I want one. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you have all these people offering, you know, to uh, to sit for you. Whereas if I was approaching them cold, it probably would have been much more resistance. Yeah, you you practice street photography as well, which involves a, in many ways, a very different sensibility because right. you're there's a there's a randomness and a fleetingness of the moments that are sort of playing out. Right. So. You know, with the stuff that you did in terms of jazz, the family portraits, the stuff that you did in Camden, what was the allure of street photography and what did you have to learn that was completely different than what you had been doing with the other work? Yeah, well, actually, street photography was the first thing I ever did in photography. You know, I mean, again, fell in love with the work of Di Carava and Cartier Bresson, Andre Cortez. And so, yeah, that was the first photography I ever really, you know, practiced you know, in earnest was street photography, but I was trying to do it in LA. So as you know, <laughs> that can be difficult. Yeah. Uh, if you're not in downtown LA, it's hard to find people on the street. You know, it's, it's always something that I've gone back to uh, when I moved to New York. You know, of course, that's, you know, the mecca for street photography. So when I moved to New York, I, of course, you know, hit the streets all over all over New York, particularly Harlem, uh, to take photographs. And um, it's probably... Not maybe not my strongest area. I'd say probably my strongest area is where you know I get to know a community of people and be there constantly and photograph them over and over again. You know, like in the jazz clubs or in um, my family, or even when I was in Brazil and I got to be around a community of people at this um, place where they practice capoeira. But for street photography is always for me a way to sharpen, you know, my sensibilities, right? To, to think about thinking quickly, about think about always moving on to the next frame. Because once you've taken a photograph, okay, that one's over, you gotta be ready for the next one. Because while you're, mm-hmm. you're fretting over what you possibly did wrong on the last one you took, the next, <laughs> the next picture is, is passing in front of you and you miss it. So that sort of sensibility of always being ready for the next picture, always 
always trying to anticipate what's happening because I really think that really the best photography comes from anticipation. You see what's going to happen before it happens. And so you put yourself in position and you're ready to snap the shutter when all these things fall into place, right? You know, the, the, uh, the skill of anticipation, right? And, and just, again, uh, being able to see things quickly and put them into place, you know, is, you know, something about street photography. You know, and it's always something, like I said, I go back to, even like I said, it's probably not my strongest aspect of my photography, but, it's some, but again, something I always go back to uh, as a way of sharpening my skills, just a way of staying in tune with the world, right? Uh, just what's going on in the streets. It's a great way to get exercise, particularly at my age. <laughs> I have to think about those things. <laughs> so it's a great way to just get out and walk around for an hour or two. You know, I just like I said, it's just something I I, I, I regularly go back to. It's one of like to me one of the the foundations of photography for for me. Yeah, speaking of age, and, and I could say that everything I do in photography come probably comes out of practicing street photography. Yeah. Oh, I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of age, I I, I was just writing something about uh, how as I've gotten older, how appreciative I am of a good <laughs> pair of shoes. You know, especially for a street photographer. Especially. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh, my God. I um, I took a trip to Cuba a couple of years ago um, with a, you know, a photography group, and I made this mistake of buying a new pair of shoes, right? Because oh, that's the one. <laughs> and I hadn't really tested them out, right? But I said, well, let me buy this two pair of shoes. I want to worry about, you know messing up my other shoes because rightfully I rightly rightly predicted that their streets are going to be in pretty bad condition with mm. the sidewalks and whatnot. And after like three days, I realized I had made a bad choice with those shoes and I had to struggle through the rest of that week. So I, oh, I've, you know, I forged through it anyway, but believe me, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, a minute that passed by, I wasn't thinking about how bad my feet felt. T- tell me about getting your, your work out there. Cause I know that some of your work is in collections. It's been exhibited in, and it's you know especially since so much of your work is personally driven. Mm-hmm. Tell me about sort of finding a place, a home for your photographs in sort of the fine art world. Considering you know that the inspiration for the images is so rooted in who you are and the life of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's again probably something I, I definitely need to um, be more proactive on. But um, I have you know been shown, particularly I was living in New York. I was more active about taking my work, you know, around to show the various museums and whatnot, was able to get my work into certain collections. I think with museums, and again, this may change, I don't know, with, in terms of now where you go in and you see, um, you know, mural-sized prints, wall-sized prints <laughs> displayed. I don't do that type of work, all right? So again, the, you know, how much receptiveness there is to the 16 by 20 silver gelatin print, you know, you know, maybe it, it, it has changed so much. But back, certainly back then, you know, people, they wanted you to have a strong personal view and they wanted you to have a strong take on what you were doing. And so it wasn't, um, and they didn't find it, you know, disqualifying that maybe I was photographing my own family members, right? Uh, they, were, they were more interested in the aesthetics and that you had a strong take on what you were saying about the work. Yeah, so I, you know, I have been able to get my work into certain, you know, collections, uh, museum collections, uh, particularly in, 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 like in New Orleans. I've, you know, much of that work, my family was taken New Orleans, in New Orleans, so New Orleans Museum of Art naturally had an interest in it. You know, so that's also can be something where you, where you take the work if they have a local museum museum, they may be interested because it depicts, you know, their, their local culture mm-hmm. there. Yeah. But that's about, you know, it, it, you know, I just try to as much as I can or, or more, or like I said, I should be more proactive, but try to, you know, send workouts and make people aware of the work and, and that these are, you know, personally made silver gelatin prints, you know, they're not made by a lab, mm-hmm. you know. They're not inkjet. You know, I'm doing some digital now, so I have done some inkjet printing. But um, for the most part, all of my black and white work is comes from film, and then they are, you know, black and white prints that have been made by me. So I think that's that learned a certain, you know, unique aspect to them as well. Do you have good confidence in terms of your printmaking? Uh, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely at this point. I do what I, I know what I like mm-hmm. <laughs> out of a print. I know what I want to come out of a print, and, you know, I'm able to get to get there. I may not be the fastest printer, all right? 
you know, I eventually get to where I need to go. And so it may, I may fight and struggle with the print. If it's not working that particular day, I'll put it away and come back to it a week or so later. And usually by then I can knock it out or one or two attempts once I give myself some, some space to think about what I need to do. Yeah. I, 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 I think my prints definitely, you know, bring out of the image what I'm trying to get out of it. I enjoyed printing. I was never a really good printer. So, <laughs> but, but I have to say, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed the meditative nature of being right. in a room. I, I was just about to say that. I know a lot of people uh, now are so happy to be able to move on to digital because they couldn't stand being in a dark room or, or didn't realize they couldn't stand it till they got, got out of it. I'm completely opposite. I love, you know, when you put on that safe light and I get my music going, it's mm-hmm. almost like being in my own little personal jazz club. Yeah. And so there's, there's this whole rhythm and, and flow yeah. that happens in there. And I, I yeah. love the tangible aspect of it. Like you're handling actual physical things, film and paper and just the, even the, the chemistry, you know, I, I just love all the tangible aspects of it, you know, and you're moving around. That's the other thing. I don't think people realize as much when you're in the dark room, you're actually physically moving around. You're not just sitting at a desk in front of a computer screen. Even that just little bit of moving around, I think is, is important. Yeah. For you, what what is a good print of your of your work? I mean, I know uh-huh. that it's going to vary depending on the subject and all those other things. But when you look at one of your best prints, what is it about it that you just love love about the fact that you mm. made that? When I'm able to really bring out those silver tones. I mean, when I, those tones, they almost sing when you get a really good print and the, the shadows, you know, have a certain depth to them and the, the mid tones just have all this tonal separation and right. And you get the, 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 uh, the highlights, they have this really nice detail and you get all of that. And, and it, it really exemplifies like the emotion. A lot of times what I'm printing, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the emotion that I want from an image. Right. It could be a musician. It could be a family member or it can be a portrait of a person on the street. And I'm thinking about some emotional aspect. Right. Some soulfulness I'm trying to bring out of that image. And so when I get a really good print, it has that kind of depth to it, that that sort of emotional quality comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it may be a little darker than maybe another photographer would opt for. But, you know, for me, that's. That's that's when it that's when it seems right. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I saw uh, Roy Dickerava's prints for the first time, the actual print, right. and I was just like, "You mean you can print this dark?" <laughs> 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 right. And I and I and I tried for a while. You know, that was almost sort of like a little uh, a little deep black hole, so to speak. That I went down for a while trying to replicate his prints, and it had to come out and go realize, okay, now that's him. Yeah, Uh, that's I can't, you know, that's his and he knows how to get that. But for me, but it was instructional. That's I learned a lot about printing. I learned about a lot about what paper could do and what developer could do by Mm -hmm. by going down that road. So even though I eventually realized that wasn't, you know, for me, it was very instructional just in terms of learning about photographic materials. Yeah, because when I see a good print, whether it's silver gelatin or platinum or even digital, when you see someone who really knows how to work those tools and create, right. a, and create right. a print that is an experience onto itself, it's not just a, a reproduction. Right. That's when you realize right. that that is an art completely unto itself. Yes, it's part of the photographic process, but right, it is right. it's something magical unto itself. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um I think a lot, particularly younger photographers starting out, I don't think they realize that as much. Because, well, for one thing, a lot of younger photographers are just only viewing their images on a computer screen to begin mm-hmm. with, as opposed to printing a lot of it. And then when they do print it, it's, you know, maybe just um very, you know, run of the mill or very what I say, the standard of which you would get. Sometimes you would see this in, in silver photography too. Mm-hmm. Some photographers would get their work printed by a lab and it would be just sort of like a very conventional looking print. There wasn't really anything right. unique or uh, deep about it. And I really think if you're, you know, you are going to print your work, you need to really find that spot 
where it really, you know, it makes an impression on somebody as a print, mm-hmm. not just this image, but as right. a print, as exactly. a physical object. It makes an impression on somebody. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, there's a living photographer or... Anybody, yeah. We talked about him as Leroy de Garava. I mean, for me, still, after all these years, I mean, I look at his, his work and there's something there so deep and so so personal, but at the same time, so universal, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the, the key for all, you know, you can make something so personal, right? That that's what brings the power to it. But at the same time, it becomes universal as well. Just to seeing his commitment to what he was doing, right? Yeah. And that wrong body of work for so long, just, you know, that's, uh, that's the pinnacle I'm still trying to reach, man. <laughs> <Aren't we all? laughs> you know, still trying to get there. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you were here when he had his, he had his exhibit at LACMA uh, here in Los Angeles. And, oh no, uh, I saw it. Yeah. I saw it in MoMA. Where's that? I think it was pretty sure the same show, right? That was at yeah. MoMA in New York. Yeah, I saw it. But he came to the Black Gallery during his time there. And oh. all the guys that you had mentioned were just surrounding him while he was holding court. And yeah. it was just like you, everyone's face was just completely enraptured. But the most wonderful thing about it, because at the time, Roy was probably in his late 70s. Uh-huh. And, but you could hear him talking about it as if he were like 20 years old. He was still as passionate, yeah. as engaged. Passionate. Uh, mm-hmm. as anything and that is just like one of the most wonderful memories that I have of that time is having a chance to meet him and just to sit at his feet and hear him share yeah. about something that you know I love so much yeah yeah like I mean it, it just like I said it's a body of work that I can go back to again and again that show was incredible just for the breadth of it you know, I, don't, I can't even imagine how many prints were in there, but just the entire span of his career. But one show I remember being blown away by was a show he had in New York. And this was probably maybe a couple of years before he passed away. It was at the uh, Jenkins Johnson Gallery in New York. And they had this entire small room dedicated to his images of Billie Holiday. Mm. And there probably was, uh, I mean, the most 20, 25 images in that room. And I maybe had seen two or three of those images before, but the rest of them were completely new to me. And I was just stunned by, <laughs> by just the beauty of those images of just, and, and first of all, just an incredible artist herself, right? An important mm-hmm. artist. But then seeing this other great artist depict her in such a loving way that that room was just like a shrine for me. I was about to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, man, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. We will be hooking up next time I come out to L.A., man. Thanks to Gerald for spending time with us. To find out more about Gerald and his work, visit GeraldCyrus.com. And I'm going to be in New York on the weekend of October 13th. And I'm conducting a small, intimate workshop that Saturday. I'm limiting it to just four people. It's a little bit of an experiment that I'm trying, and it should be a lot of fun. The workshop is not listed on my website. And you'll only know about it if you listen to the show. It's just $399, and if you're interested, email me directly at info at thecandidframe.com. Those two spots are still available, so reach out to me as soon as possible to secure your spot. And if you're a fan of The Candid Frame, take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps our ranking, but it also creates awareness of the show. Though it only takes a few minutes, you'll be making a huge difference. Take the time to do it today. Thanks to Sumilux 1.4 and K5KJ, both from the U.S., for their five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you help us to meet the cost of production and help us to bring you these episodes each week. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal. 
It's your support that helps to bring you these conversations that you won't hear anywhere else every week. Do it today. Thanks to Mike Epstein, Timothy Floyd, Jim Kelly, and Kyle Taylor for their recent contributions. Can't thank you enough, guys. Thank you so much. It was your support that allowed us to create the free Candid Frame app, which is the easiest way to access every episode of the Candid Frame. Available for Apple iOS and Android, you automatically receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet. And you can easily search for episodes based on a name or keyword and save your favorite episodes for repeated listening. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyandx. And this is ebodyandx, and this is The Candid Frame.